Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast on satire, recorded live at our May 2015 event. Steve Bornius, author of Mad Men and numerous other books, and David Slack, Metro contributor, gather with writer and editor Stephen Stratford to discuss satirical writing. Merriment ensues. We hope you enjoy this session. Uh, welcome to Satirists at Large. Uh, please turn your phones off. I know you've been told, told that before, but uh, please check. My name is Stephen Stratford, and I'm the chair of this session. Uh, that's enough about me. You're here to listen to Steve Braunius and David Slack, uh, and to hear them discussing the craft of writing satire. Uh, prepare to be disappointed uh, <laughs> if you're expecting them to be a barrel of laughs. Yeah. Uh, pe people who are, who are funny in, in print are usually pretty dull in, in conversation. <laughs> uh, Woody Allen is, is famously boring, and um, Rowan Atkinson a, as well, total dullard. And <laughs> why, why would these two be any different? So dial your expectations back a bit, and, and off we go. I'll introduce them. Steve Braunius is the finest satirist that Mount Monganui has ever produced. <laughs> He used to write for The Listener, he used to write for Metro, he used to write for the Sunday Star Times. <laughs> In each case, he moved on, uh, uh, sometimes voluntarily. <laughs> now he writes for The Herald. His sixth book, Civilization, won the general non-fiction category of the 2013 New Zealand Post Book Awards. His latest book is called Mad Men, and it's an account of last year's election campaign, it says on the back cover that it is funny and, I quote, mostly accurate. <laughs> if you buy a copy later and ask him nicely, he'll sign it for you. His current satirical output includes the column The Secret Diary of so-and-so, Eleanor Cat and John Key, just whoever's in the news that week. David Slack is, by common consent, the finest satirist to come out of Kiwitea. <laughs> he bills himself as a mouth for hire. He's a semi-regular host on, on Radio Live. You can hear him on national radio every Monday, dueling with Rodney Hyde in what David calls half an hour of ritual goading and verbal, verbal tag-team fuggery. He's a regular on the panel on Radio New Zealand. Frankly, he has opinions, and he'll probably... Uh, share some of them with you later. He was a speechwriter for Prime Ministers Geoffrey Palmer and Jim Bolger. He still writes speeches for clients here and, and overseas, and he has a website that creates them automatically for, for <laughs> his subscribers, which I think is brilliant. You know, I'm, I'm a book editor, and uh, I'd, I'd love to have a website that edited books automatically. It's fantastic. His third book, Bull Rush, is due from HarperCollins in July. More to the point, he writes a satirical column for Metro in which he imagines the future obituary of a current celebrity, politician, the occasional prince, people like that. So what, what we're going to do is um, I'll bang on for a bit about satire in general uh, and then there'll be probing questions from me of our two satirists and, and some lying, dissembling answers from them. Uh, there'll be a reading. Each of them will will give a reading from their work, just so you can see if they're funny or not. Uh, and then there'll be questions from the floor in about the last quarter of an hour. So, first, satire. What is it? Uh, years ago, I used to write it for Metro and, and also for a, a television programme that was a shameless knockoff of, of spitting image, sort of puppets and being read about politicians. So I've done it, but I couldn't say what it is. There's, there's parody where does that turn into satire? And I think possibly you, you might have some thoughts about that. But parody seems to be kind of affectionate, whereas satire is, is at the savage end of the spectrum, I think. I'm, I'm really not sure. The one thing I do know is that it was invented by the Romans about 2,000 years ago. The Greeks never got around to it, but, but the Romans did. So I'll read you a sample. Uh, the satires of Juvenal is, is the best-known collection. So here's, here's a bit of Juvenal. He's talking about hypocritical adulterers. Laronia the adulteress, 
couldn't abide that grim individual forever shouting, Who's bed now, you breaker of Julian law? Grimacing, she said, O oh, happy age that set you on to carp at our morals. But just as a matter of interest, where did you buy the essence of balsam that wafts from your hairy neck? Don't hesitate to tell us that who owns the shop it came from. There you go. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's what had them rolling in the aisles in Rome and <laughs> in the first century um, AD. It's uh, aged very well. Yeah. <laughs> Subsequently, we had, um, we had Jonathan Swift, who, who's Irish, his modest proposal, it's very famous still, of 1729, suggested that poor Irish people could alleviate their poverty by selling their children, their babies, to, to the English for the for dinner table. And Private Eye, more recently, uh, the, the, the fortnightly magazine uh, that was founded in London in 1961, still going strong, it's absolutely brilliant. Very good on literary politics, I must say, if you want to read rude stuff about writers you've heard of, the private eyes the place. Uh, recently on TV there was The Thick of It, which was you know, spectacular swearing uh, and satire of politicians. New Zealand has produced more satirists th than you think, and, and some very good ones. Um, John, Lark John Clark is a genius, obviously. Um, I think back to the hit TV series A Week of It in the 1970s. McPhail and Gadsby in the 1980s. They were co-written by a couple of lawyers, Chris McVeigh and A.K. Grant. Now, Alan died in 2000, but Chris is still with us. He's actually still with us right in this room. So, g'day, Chris, wherever you are. Uh, he's, he's here to check out the younger generation of, of satirists, and I use the term younger uh, loosely, obviously. <laughs> So New Zealand satire, I, I've developed a, a theory about it, and it's that fielding is the epicentre. <laughs> David Slack here is from tiny Kiwitea, as I said, which is just out of fielding. Tom Scott, he was born in London, but he was raised in tiny Rongatea, which is just out of fielding. John Clark is from Palmerston North, which is just out of fielding. Alan Grant was from Whanganui, which is a bit further away, but it's kind of Manawatu still, you know, so, yes. So, Steve Ronius from Mount Whanganui, does it help to be a provincial? Um, does it help to be a provincial? Hmm. Uh, oh, I don't think it's, it's neither here nor there, really. Uh, I'm from Mount Whanganui, uh, sort of a centre of civilisation and learning. Um, Yes, it's, it's, it's held me in good stead in my satirical career. Uh, you could taste the mockery on the streets. <laughs> David. Yeah. Um, you've reminded me of something, actually. Actually, no, just before I say that, I want to say hello to Chris McVeigh, because I'm a huge admirer wherever you are. And what I thought what is one of the most inventive things I've ever heard was that you were going to have a son and called him, call him Russell and send him to Auckland to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, from, what I, I've, I, from what I can see, it, it played out beautifully for you. Um, the, uh, something I noticed just the other day, um, I was watching a, a documentary about Peter Kelly, the race caller and auctioneer from Palmerston North, and he, he that's the guy that John Clark used as a model for a lot of the, the language he used, uh, particularly with the Fred Dagg character. And you see this documentary with Peter Kelly, he was, he was a great guy, um, but it's also just so comical to see it because the way he's talking about the way the, 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 the track is today, yeah, uh, 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 Stephen, is, you know, it's, it's exactly the same cadence, the same tone, and that's what I grew up with. And I remember when, when Fred Dagg was very pop, was, was you know, such a hit on TV, all of these knuckle-dragging sons of the soil at Fielding Agricultural High School who were boarding there um, were all thinking that they were aping him with their year good day. <laughs> when they weren't aping him, they were just saying the same bloody thing, you know. And, and I grew up with these people and they pissed me off mightily. And... Um, because it was a conservative place and it was a reactionary place and it was a conformist place and I hated all of that. And in fact, the only reason I did law was because it was the only thing they offered it um, uh, that they didn't offer at Massey University. I, mean, I needed to go further away from, from, from fielding than Palmerston North. Um, but I don't know. Uh, 
you, it's, it's that idea of the, the friction that makes the, the, the pearl and the, the oyster that makes the pearl. You get rub, rubbed against something, you've got something to, to play with, I think. Something to react against. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, now for the last six years we've had a government that's given me plenty. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you start writing satire? Did you, did you wake up one morning and think, oh, I'm going I'm to write me some satire? Did, where, where did that come from? Um, I don't know, specifically with the... Um, Secret Diary, I was um, just wanting to come up with a new idea. I wanted something new and fun to do. And I thought of the structure uh, for the Secret Diary. And the key to it, really, is that I thought, you know, it'd be great to take the sort of uh, the newsmaker of the week, who I fondly refer to in my own notes as um, the wretch of the week. <laughs> And um, hold them up to, you know, ridicule and mockery and travesty. And the key to it was that I thought, we'll do it Monday to Friday. And that will achieve two things, possibly. Uh, you will have an inbuilt narrative to it so that the story starts on a Monday and all starts on a, ends on a Friday. And you might have a narrative arc. And I found that really interesting to do. And the other thing which uh, was really uh, important to me is that every week I come to write it, I don't have a blank screen. I have the word Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Very soothing. <laughs> it's actually, the obituary is the same thing. Um, you start with uh, John Key, died today, age 94. And, and that's hugely soothing for me. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and actually, you know, each, each week when I'm doing, sorry, each month when I do that, the, the, my, actually, no, I'm anticipating one of your further questions. I'll shut up for a moment. <laughs> no, but I know what you mean. You know, it's partly like, uh, I think you're about the same as me, actually, David. I, I've never told or made or written a joke that I never wanted to told, make or write another thousand times, you know, and I sort of regard them pretentiously as motifs. Uh, for example, uh, Almost every time I write about John Key, I have this image of his head floating effortlessly above his body until it releases itself and bobbles around on the ceiling. Um, this, of course, is true to life. There's nothing particularly funny about it. But, yeah, it, it, it keeps you going to have these motifs, these regular things like Monday and he died age 94. I wonder how you, how you select your, your victims. I was thinking particularly of, <laughs> of the obituary because I've been reading them and um, it made me think you've got to trust that the reader has enough information about the character to, to get the jokes. Because uh, there was one about Dean Barker and, and I read that and it's not at all funny because I don't know anything <laughs> about Dean Barker. No, don't. None taken. <laughs> <laughs> not, not following the, the America's Cup at all. Uh, but the others are, that I do know something about uh, are hysterically funny. So how, how do you select them? Yeah, that, that is an issue when I, I talk it through with Simon Wilson, the editor generally, uh, I, I think of one and then propose it to him and generally he decides whether he's, he's he, who I rely on for, to deciding whether that will make sense to people or not. We did one once about Rhys Jones, the head of the military um, and I think he was enthusiastic about that because they um, they had fucked over John Stevenson for about three years, and I think he was pleased to to be able to write the scales. But actually, I don't think anybody knew much about this guy. Mm. Um, I had him ended up um, being this hapless guy who uh, died because he uh, couldn't get out of his car, um, and he had his key, and they found that his keys were in his pocket the whole time, um, and that was kind of fun. But I don't think people got it. But to answer your question. Um, the, uh, I really start with two questions. Who's asking for it and who apart from John Key? And, um, and, uh, and I, I envy Steve greatly that, 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 that he's, there's, there's more of a topicality to doing it once a week than once a month where there's got to be something a little more enduring about it. Um, there's got to be a... Um, all, but, but also they've got to be familiar. They have to have done something that has them at least somewhat in the public mind. And sometimes, it actually, frankly, the, the ground's a little thin. And the, then I turn to my good friend Twitter, and uh, people usually help. And, in fact, it was Twitter who suggested Dean Barker. So it was their mistake. 
Just kidding, Twitter. <laughs> you were victims? Uh, yeah, it's a matter of uh, topicality, you know, so, uh, and sometimes nobody has done anything particularly stupid or weak. <laughs> you know, we're, we're a sensible, laconic people. Stay home and go to work and feed the kids. And so you can wait and wait and wait. Um, other times, of course, you know, they come running towards you before they've said or done anything. Prince Harry is, you know, obviously comedic. Um, but, yeah, often it's going to be... I, I write them... Uh, I sit down and start writing them on Thursday night at about 7 p.m., uh, trudge through till around about midnight or 1 a.m., and then get up about 6 a.m. and file by 10. Um, and, yeah, it can... You may not... Ha I may not have any clear idea till about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock on the Thursday. You're casting around... Uh, obviously there's always John Key <laughs> last year there was always David Cunliffe um, Andrew Little doesn't seem to be particularly amusing uh, really and, and then there are you know there, there are weeks uh, this is possibly preempting a, a question from your vile little mind Stephen uh, then there are weeks in which there are people who are patently absurd and do uh, deserve your attention, but it would be insensitive and impractical. Uh, uh, you know, wouldn't be wouldn't be the thing to do. Uh, and I'm thinking, uh, remember the week? You know, the the dude escaped from prison and went to Brazil. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. However, uh, his crimes were not particularly amusing, and so you have to leave him alone. I did do one of Rolf Harris, and I regretted that. I thought that was poor taste. I was going to ask, is, is, is anyone too sacred a cow? Uh, Daniel McLaughlin, who's a, who's a, a blogger from, from Wellington, who does a lot of satire, has actually given up because it's, it's, it's too hard. Um, so I wanted to ask how long it takes you to, to write an obituary, but we'll come back to that. He, he says that, because um, I've been doing research, you know, so I've asked a few people, how they do it. And he says, nowadays a lot of the funniest satire is on Twitter. But increasingly, if you tweet anything ironic or funny, you get deluged with literally, and he's a scientist, so he means literally, thousands of scolds calling you out for being a neoliberal or a gender, I, don't, I can't pronounce it, hegemon, hegemonist. That's something that's bad, anyway. And, <laughs> and, and, and he says, and, and that's a real drag. Now, I, I had this recently, I, I've got a, a blog, and I, I said something on it, I, I referred to Julian Assange as a narcissist, which is actually the nicest thing anyone has ever said about him, pe people who've, who've worked with him. And so, so he's, he's a no-go area, obviously, a, a, a sacred bull, if you will. Um, who, who else is there that you can't, you, you can't possibly... The, the approach I take is that you don't punch down, you punch up. Um, and I suppose that, that then says, well, what's the point of this whole thing? And, and um, I suppose what I'm doing is where I see somebody who is throwing their weight around too much, throwing it away around unreasonably, I, that, I really object to that. And that's what I react against. Um, I, people you know, uh, who see me as a lefty think that I'm just doing it to pursue an agenda. It's not actually that. It's, well, maybe it is, but it's not how it feels to me. If I see people who are throwing their weight around or being pretentious or, or pompous, that's who I go for. Now, if they don't do that, then they're off, the, they're just sort of out of it anyway, out, out of contention anyway, because I just don't think it's going to be funny. Um, do, you I, actually, do you actually object to people in that way? It, uh, it's like a motive, you know, you object to them. Yeah, it is kind of visceral sometimes. Um, it, it just really pisses me off sometimes to see somebody being unreasonable or, or intimidating people. That's why the ponytail thing. I'm not, God Almighty, how many John Key ones is there? Um, the, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's where power is abused that I, I really get exercised, frankly. And that's, that, that's what motivates me more than anything. But also, also, and maybe only, I, I just, since I was a kid, I found that when you make a room laugh, Jesus, fun. And so you just keep doing it. And, and, and not just because you like to hear people laughing, but you know that people are enjoying laughing. 
you're giving people some, something good. And I, I was telling Steve before we came on, we were because we were talking about that. I, I think he will, always shows there's a certain affection to what to his his subjects. And I think all good comedies, all, all, all good comedy and all good comics show that too. They actually have a, an affection for humanity. Even though they're mocking them, even though they're making them silly, they're kind of saying, well, it was your turn today to look stupid, but actually we all look stupid, you know. And, uh, um, uh, Just speak I was, for yourself, mate. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I was having this conversation with Michelle Accord a couple of days ago because she'd, she'd just that minute done something that made her wince. I could see it. And I, and I said, I, I remember this. I had this lunch with an old friend from university I hadn't seen for about 20 years. We went to this nice little noodle place that I recommended. And so I was just charging into this noodle stuff because I like it so much and we're chatting away. And um, she's talking and I'm scooping away. And um, as we're going along, she said, you've done well. And I said, oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm having a bit of fun. She, she said, no, you've just about finished your bowl. And <laughs> it, it doesn't make you get too full of yourself. It's, uh... I don't know what the point was there, but it suddenly occurred to me. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, Steve? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, while David was talking, you know, I mean, there's something I... You went to sleep. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking very vigorously. Um, I'm concerned, you know, uh, with my own writing, I suppose, as a satirist, about the, uh, the sort of political motivations of it and that, you know, being a sort of a... Basically, I'm a PC uh, kind of person, quite very liberal... Uh, but you don't want to get into the sort of thing where your, your satires and your secret diaries are just sort of like, you know, Bomber Bradbury with nuance and jokes. Mm. You know, Chris Trotter with a laugh track. <laughs> uh, or, or, or something like that. And, you know, when you talk about the, uh, the ponytail incident, obviously that was going to be the, the subject for that week of the secret diary. And I really struggled with that, that one, you know, and you're talking there, David, about um, not wanting to punch down. And really, that's all I really wanted to do. <laughs> uh, I thought she was a fairly loathsome character, but I thought I'd better uh, be PC and correct. And that week, I think I uh, d divided it up between John Key uh, and Bomber Bradbury, who broke the story, you know. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't share this thing about uh, you can't hit or punch below. There's that great thing of uh, Muldoon's where uh, he was criticised for um, attacking somebody whose reputation had already been savaged. And, you know, they said, you're kicking a man when they're down. And he said, no better time. <laughs> I think, I think, though, what, what's actually going on is sometimes what might appear to be punching down is actually punching the person at a point where, where they are up, although they aren't in most respects. Are they up, up or down? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've done this before on sessions, and I just end up trying to make sense of it, so I'll, 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 I'll put that one to one side. What's your next question, Steve? Uh, just staying, staying with the victims. Um, some of them take it well and some of them don't. I think oh, you both yeah. had this experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who wants to go first? I, um, we were just talking about this before, that one, one victim was um, Paul Goldsmith. I had him and John Banks in a sort of, oh, I don't know, SM relationship, I suppose. <laughs> and, 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 and I had to emcee a, a, an election rally thing that they were both taking part in, and I, I, I presented myself put out my hand and he shook it and he said, you know, with a big grin, he said, you know, I really should be punching you. And um, um, because I'm referring to that and you know, by his standards, that was incandescent with rage, I would say. And, and I, I was remembering that to Stephen. He said, you know, he's got a black belt. And this guy actually could have choked the life out of me. I, I, I think I was kind of lucky. Um, I, I have pissed people off, but I've also, I did one on Gareth Morgan, which I thought was quite funny, but it was actually quite um, uh, kind of praising him too. And um, he, he tweeted how much he'd enjoyed it, and I got some work out of him later that year. So, um, I, and that's so, you know, sometimes satire is a sort of a LinkedIn thing rather than um, comedy. Um, but on the other hand, uh, oh, and John Banks, every time I meet him, he doesn't know who I am. Um, although I've mocked him many times. 
Um, and, and read what you will out of that uh, in uh, the context of the dot-com uh, litigation. Um, anyway, um, I want to share this letter with you, but because I don't punch down, I, I'm not going to identify it particularly, just uh, to read this. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, come, come and see us afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, three drinks in at the Shakespeare, I'll tell you too. Subject, disguising obituary in the uh, date edition, to whom it may concern. Now we're all in caps. Our family is absolutely disguised with your publication of our siblings' obituary. We find it completely offensive. If you think it was a joke, you are sick. You don't have any empathy, compassion, feelings for anyone but your, yourself. No, now the caps are off. I have cancelled my subscription. I have informed every person I've in contact with since last Friday. You are nothing more than caps are back on. Lo, in fact, you have really showed everybody your true colours. Think about it. How would you like to read in a magazine the obituary of one of your family members? Oh, by the way, you haven't had the guts to phone me back, lowlife. 25 exclamation marks. Uh, Simon Wilson had to feel that. Um, I stand behind him, uh, just being be, being the low life, and um, he wrote back to this person and said, "This set out um, another fifty years of happy life for your sibling. Um, it was quite affectionate. It was it, it, there was some praise to it. Um, I don't think that uh, his 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 message was persuasive, but um, <laughs> the." Um, I worked in the Beehive, and every every minister's office was full of cartoons of themselves making fun of them. They love it, and pe and, and it's people in the public eye who I'm doing this about mostly, and they actually get a kick out of it. I think, and yeah. you know, uh, I and, I, and I'm I, I, I'm not trying to make them miserable. I'm I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Mm. I, I know Tom Scott and and Chris Lane have have had. Nice little earners from their political cartoons because yeah. exactly that, the politicians love that stuff. There's no way that you can monetize what, what you do in that way, is there? Steve, any, any, your diaries, can you turn them into frame a, a, a collectible? Uh, no, I shouldn't think so. Uh, you know, they're in, a, they're in a newspaper, they're of passing entertainment at best. Um, but yeah, listening to uh, David's diverting. Um, story about Judith Collins's sister. <laughs> You're dis you are disguising. <laughs> Where was I before I was interrupted? Um, no, I was thinking during that, uh, I, I, I think I've seldom uh, had reaction uh, from the uh, people who I've diarised. Um, it's either that or uh, I have, and I've clean forgotten, and I find that quite possible because um, the truth is, is that most often uh, with the people who I'm choosing for the, for the diary, um, I just don't care. <laughs> and beneath that, I just don't care. <laughs> um, you get more of a, a, a response, you know, from, from readers. And there was a, um, a poignant one, which I got quite recently. Uh, it was in regard to my book, Mad Men. Uh, and it was from a woman called Alice who lived in Christchurch. It was a long letter. Alice said that she had bought ten copies of Mad Men for ten friends at Christmas as a stocking filler. Terrific. Um, Christmas Day came and went, and so did New Year's Day. Around about the middle of January, she began to realise none of these friends have got back to me and said thanks. And at first she was, you know, quite aggrieved and thought that her ten friends were creeps. No manners at all around about the end of January, and still no word, and she was, you know, didn't want to ask, why not? She thought, well, damn it, I'm going to sit down and open this book and see if that... <laughs> if there's any clues as to the silence. She said, yes, 
a clue was revealed. Your book is foul, <laughs> mean, provocative, and disgusting. And I feel now ashamed that my ten friends, friends, many of whom she wrote were elderly and distinguished, <laughs> may have been traumatised, and in fact one had since died. <laughs> I wrote back and thanked her for the purchase. <laughs> Perhaps you could favour us with, with, a, with a reading from the book. Oh, uh, sure. Particularly yeah. foul passage. All right. Um, uh, this is from uh, Mad Men. Um, I'll just preface this one. Um, uh, these were from writings that I did during the, uh, the election campaign, and they were posted as a blog on the Metro website. Um, one of them, however, uh, the editor refused to publish. I think he did that on about three occasions. Uh, one of them was a, uh, a parody story, which um, for reasons which still escaped me, he didn't want to run, and that was, do you remember, uh, uh, what's Paul Holmes' daughter called? Millie. Millie. Millie got the uh, tattoo of her father, uh, at the, uh, of her father's face at the top of her thigh and it was photographed in the Woman's Weekly and there was quite a to-do about it. Uh, so I wrote a parody of it saying that she had got a tattoo, tattoo of uh, Paul Holmes's face on her face <laughs> <laughs> and would walk down the street and people would say, fuck, it's Paul. <laughs> I gather he thought it was in poor taste. <laughs> this one uh, wasn't run uh, because he thought the, uh, our bosses at Bauer may not like it. Um, and the background to that is that uh, I had just been made redundant and just been disestablished. Um, and that sort of fed into this particular one. This is a, a campaign diary during that great campaign. Uh, in which the Prime Minister solves a problem called Haga. <laughs> Prime Minister John Key has passed emergency legislation making Nikki Haga redundant. <laughs> Haga's role as an activist has been disestablished. <laughs> he can no longer write books which are critical of the government. His train has left the station, said Mr Key. We have told him by phone and in a follow-up email. We have also invited him to a meeting and made sure he was informed that he could bring a support person. <laughs> we wish him well in the future. News, News Talk ZP host and impartial observer Mike Hosking <laughs> <laughs> welcomed Hager's redundancy. Good riddance, he said. <laughs> David, a sample of your words. Well, Steve reminded me that mostly um, things go swimmingly well with uh, Simon Wilson, who is a most splendid editor, but occasionally he, he, I, he also tells me that, that he doesn't think this will work. And we were away in Adelaide for a, a holiday for a wedding, and I dashed this thing off, and I thought it was pretty funny, actually. And um, he didn't. And we spent half of this bloody weekend recasting this thing and I, th I just I looked at it this morning and realized actually I don't think it's bad um, so I'm going to read this isn't the one I was going to read but I will read that as well I'll just give you a taste of this one because I, I don't know I'll just try it out here um, this was it's titled nothing rhymed and it was just after the uh, Auckland mayoral election it was set at April 1 2079 server Luigi Waigi the world's tiniest porn star is dead he was 94 <laughs> Um, ambitious, ambitious almost from the day he was born, he set out from South Africa possessed of a burning ambition to be photographed next to important people. <laughs> he scored quickly. Barack Obama, Ellen, Kanye West, almost every man and woman inside the Washington Beltway before long he was ready for New Zealand. Blah, blah, blah. He does a whole lot of this stuff. Um, he, uh, um, within weeks he was upright once more in Florida, star sharing exciting news of his betrothal. Few expected to hear any more, but the TV show Bedtime with Paul Henry paid him a call 
offering Luigi a second act. The show's host by turns dared, goaded and cheered the eager Luigi as he pursued women the world over, camera crew in tow. Not her, the host would say, the fat one over there, the whale-shaped one with the moustache. Dire as it was, the concept was a rating success right up until the day Luigi propositioned a woman who worked as a nanotechnologist. She told me I would shrink to the size of a thumb for just half an hour and then I would get big again, he lamented. But it's been three years and nothing's happened. <laughs> and so now he becomes this, this porn star who's tiny and well, interesting things happen. I thought it was kind of funny. Anyway. Thank you. Simon thinks you're wrong. Anyway, milk and human kindness. Judith Collins... Beloved grandmother of the nation has perished at her Coromandel home, falling backwards into a composting toilet. <laughs> Granny Jude was 94. Universally beloved for her cheerful, chirpy nature and great warmth, she was a kindly godmother to the poor, the frightened, the environmentally concerned. A hug from Granny Jude, people would say, could keep you going all winter. As a younger woman, she walked a flintier path, early frozen mornings on a dairy farm, early frozen mornings at law school, early frozen mornings getting onto the radio to tear people to tiny ragged pieces. As a lawyer, as a minister of the crown, as the honoured guest of the Chinese government, she comported herself in the style of Margaret Thatcher, her idol. She had power, she had hauteur, she had everybody's number. A scandal in the 2014 election year irritated her almost to tears, but she embraced it as a useful pretext for skipping a tedious campaign. It was then, as she holidayed in Papua Nui, that her life changed in the most remarkable way. Colleague Morris Williamson had arranged for her to use a friend's holiday home. Helpfully, he had rewired the spa pool before her arrival. Unhelpfully, he had, as Granny Jude would later tease him, done a Morris on it. The voltage she sustained as she set down her car and milk and stepped into the water was enough to drop a horse, according to paramedics, and yet there she was, out for the count, but breathing steadily with a big smile on her face. <laughs> Even more surprising was the revelation upon regaining consciousness that she was now an ardent communist. <laughs> it was as if a switch had been turned on, said Morris, which was quite funny when you thought about it. As indomitable as ever, but now with a heart that beat for the downtrodden and the forgotten, the new Jude became a milk-fed Mother Teresa. Expensive Trelease Cooper jackets were replaced by Greenpeace t-shirts. Heels gave way to hemp sandals. Everywhere she went, she dissed out cheesecake to the poor and gentle chidings to the rich. She trailed goodness, warmth and patchouli. She... She browbeat the country's dairy exporters to give free milk to Africa. She campaigned for the decriminalization of drugs, for a non-custodial penal system, for the deportation of Paul Henry, for bicycle lanes. She battled for the preservation of Kauri wetlands and rare snails. She wrote generous moving letters of apologies to those she had hurt, beginning with Materia Ture and ending 189,000 notes later with Katie Bradford. When she bathed the feet of, feet of David Benson Pope for Campbell Live, John Campbell wept for hours. <laughs> Beloved as she was, Granny Jude had her enemies. After waiting six years in vain for the best political stunt ever to deliver its punchline, former besties Cameron Slater and Rachel Glucina rounded on her with a cold fury. Footage shot from his SUV of a cackling Glucina shoving Granny Jude off her bicycle would win Slater his 16th blogger of the year. <laughs> Canon Award, but was otherwise deplored. People said it was just like Granny Jude to respond by visiting the families Slater had mocked on the occasion of their children's deaths to offer them sympathy. She honestly didn't have a mean bone in her body, said longtime friend Mike Hosking, and she could turn your whole life around. I'll never forget the day we pushed the Maserati into the compactor. <laughs> I think your sister overreacted. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's, there's one question that I'm sure everyone in the room wants asked. You guys can dish it out. Can you take it? No. Uh, Steve, can you tell us? <laughs> could, could you give us the background to this tweet? Steve, Steve is on Twitter. He's, he's a modern person. He tweeted on the 25th of March, a prominent criminal lawyer 
has sent me a, quote, secret diary, unquote, of myself. It is cruel, exact, and unflattering, and I'm very impressed. Hashtag, no worries, hashtag, sob. <laughs> what was that all about? Yeah, it was during the, uh, <coughs> the Mark Lundy trial, and one of the uh, defence lawyers, uh, in a quiet moment, uh, penned this uh, satire and uh, emailed it to me. Uh, of me and my behaviour and performance uh, in the courtroom and demeanour. And uh, I was really distraught. I was really hurt. I couldn't believe it. I wrote back saying, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and he said, I'm so sorry. I thought you'd find it funny. I went, oh, yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, having found out that he intended it uh, to be humorous and not an attack, uh, but yeah, it just proved to me that um, uh, I'm extremely uncaring and remorseless uh, when I write this diary. And if someone so much as says, I don't like you, I will cry. David, have you... Well, I go on the radio every Monday morning with Sean Plunkett and Rodney Hyde, so there's really no, 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 no fear that I'd plunge them there. <laughs> I, that, 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 I'm just a punching bag for half an hour a week. And, and it used to be funny at, at the start. Rodney Hyde said, I love David Slack. He's every, he stands for everything that's wrong with the left in New Zealand. And, and it was funny the first time, but he's been doing it for a year and a half now. It's getting a bit fucking tired, to be honest. <laughs> um, what do you got? <laughs> I was going to ask about, about being lefties. Well, you're, you know, self-confessed lefty, and Steve pretends that he's not, but he's, he's as PC as they come. Uh, is, is, it, is it a left-wing thing, um, satire, or is there such a thing as right-wing satire? Would, would that be possible? I'm asking for a friend, actually. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, PJ O'Rourke's a very funny guy. I'm, I'm trying to think if what he does is satire or not. He's certainly very funny, and he, he represents a, a right-wing point of view, and I love reading his stuff. Um. Yeah, well, you know, as I was talking earlier, you know, I worry about um, satire from both points of view, actually. Uh, you know, it being too uh, soft on uh, left-wing leaders, perhaps, if you're of liberal inclination, which I am. And uh, conversely, uh, I find satire to be really a very conservative um, discipline. It kind of upholds traditions. Uh, it laughs at newfangled ideas. Um, I don't know. I find a lot of it to be quite smug and stupid. And it's laughing at things which are challenging and threatening. Um, you know, as an example... Uh, there's one I wrote last year on uh, Julian Assange, uh, who I regard as a great hero, a fantastic achievement with Wikipedia, one of the, the century's you know, great figures, actually. Um, there was an incident last year in which he was claiming something which was quite preposterous uh, and it needed to be written about, and I kind of agonised about it, you know, how am I going to do this? And do I just sort of mock him and so forth when I don't actually feel that? Because you've got to be, have a, a degree of honesty, if not absolute honesty. So I worked probably a little bit too hard on it, and the result was, uh, I thought, respectful, entertaining, probably not especially funny. However, the upshot of it is that uh, Wikipedia have... Uh, what's it called? Wiki Wikileaks, Wikileaks, sorry, Wikileaks. Mm -hmm has a, a, a Twitter page, and someone said to me, oh, they've responded to your column. I said, goodness, really? And so I had a look, and it said, um, the media hits a new low. <laughs> Imagined thoughts of Julian. I said, oh, that's a shame. And, and the guy said, uh, who, who, who knows Assange and works within WikiLeaks, said, you know who wrote that, don't you? I said, oh, God <laughs> damn it. Uh, Julian Assange had written it, and there's somebody who I really, you know, uh, come close to, to, well, certainly admire really intensely, and a, a stupid entertainment had sort of uh, made him feel mocked. 
So I, you, yes, sorry. No, no. Yeah. Oh, I, I was I was going to say that I um, I'm I'm grateful to have an editor like Simon Wilson who you know I, I defended that one, but actually he's mostly absolutely right. I did a thing about John Key once, which. Um, was sort of riffing on the fact that I'm a speechwriter and I decided to write, uh, because this might be a new form we could use of writing fake speeches. And so I did this one for John Key. And, and it was, he was right, it was, it was lame. It, it read like the, the rant of everything lefties think is wrong with John Key, which is actually not reading him right. And uh, he, he's an interesting guy, Key. You know, he, he said something early on, I think it might have been an interview with Guy and Espiner, that it, in the end, people would fall out of love with him for the same reason they'd fallen in love with him. Actually, he didn't use the word love, but it was, it, that was the import of it. And I'm intrigued by that. And I, I think I, we maybe saw a little bit of it in the last few weeks when he talked about being casual. Um, sorry, I'm digressing again. Um, sometimes you, 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 you do get it wrong, and, and, and I think if you're too close to it, um, you've got to have a little distance, I think, and to, to do it well. And sometimes I'm conscious that I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little too exercised. And, and maybe, you know, um, that, that visceral thing you were, you, were, you were asking me about maybe gets in the way too. I think you do have to be detached. Mm. So a couple of years ago, uh, I was having a chat with David. And uh, David Cunliffe, who was the Labour leader at that time, had just made a, uh, a very important speech, a breakthrough kind of speech. Wrong David. Mm? Wrong David. No, no, no. What, what do you mean? Labour David. Yeah. Cunliffe. If I know where the story's going. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Oh, was it? Who yeah, was yeah. it? The David before. Who was the David before? Oh, Shearer. That's right. Sorry. Anyway. It was David Shearer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just, it was David Shearer. And, and we, we met up and I said, oh, good God almighty, did you hear that fatuous speech by Shearer today? The guy should be hung. And David said, I wrote that. I see it's nine <laughs> I see we have nine minutes. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, I felt awful. Um, one of, one of the, I didn't care. And <laughs> I really didn't care. No, what, I felt terrible about what, it one of, for one several of, minutes. What, <laughs> One of the most mortifying things about this is that after a while you start wondering if it's not the leaders but you. Um, it's all of the Davids. Um, that's about enough confessing. Um, the, uh, well, you know, whoever the, the, the guy is who wrote, um, and presumably Cunliffe didn't write it himself, the, one, the line about, um, I'm ashamed to be a man. Didn't do that. No, wasn't you? <laughs> no. I mean, it's an incredible lie that you couldn't make up in a satire, you know. <laughs> Hilarious. Actually, last I'll say about it, but one, my experience with, with him is that he, he's conscious that he, he doesn't want to say something somebody said before, so he takes it and uses different words so it doesn't actually bloody work. And, and that's kind of what was going on there. It was, it was distressing to see. Um, so I was the, just so the actual line was, I'm proud to be a man. <laughs> <laughs> he just thought he'd play with it a yeah. little bit. Damn foolish. <laughs> we have nothing to fear but freedom itself at last. <laughs> um, the, the, the frustration of doing political speeches is that it's never just you and the, the, the candidate. It's a hundred other people as well. And Jesus, that gets you. So you start out with something that actually looks like a pretty good speech and it ends up out there as something that other people had a go at and then somebody happens to ask you at a party, well, did, you, did you hear that appalling speech Sarah gave the other day, David? And this kind of shit happens. It's, uh, it's mortifying. I, I once got a, a draft back for a, a speech in the Prime Minister's office. The head of the PM's department had had a go at it and changed it and the opening sentence was now 97 words long. <laughs> this is what you deal with. I worked in a, uh, I lived, sorry, in a, in, a, uh, in a city commune once in Wellington. And we used to take in, it used to take in uh, people from, uh, you know, the, the, the local psychiatric unit. And uh, one of them was completely mad. And uh, one day snapped and chased me through the, uh, the gardens with a meat cleaver. Managed to get the hell away from him. And I said to the director of this commune, where did you get that guy from? You know, what did he used to do? And he said, oh, that was Muldoon's former speechwriter. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have foretold your future. <laughs> That's Shearer's for the speechwriter. He did the one about I'm ashamed to be a man. <laughs> Bob Mayo on keyboards. Bob Mayo. <laughs> And, and uh, please, don't, don't go, because I, I want to invite Susanna Andrew up, up to the stage. Uh, and have you got a microphone? Where did it go? Is there, is there a spare microphone? Talk in mine. <laughs> come, come and do it. I'm not kidding. Whisper in Steve's ear because um, I'm um, representing Unity Box and we give out something called the Nigel Cox Award. And we're one of our um, recipients of it. It does come with a very large book voucher for $1,000. Um, wow. I love the jacket, Suzanne. Isn't it good? Belongs to Nigel's aunt, who represented New Zealand in um, Wimbledon, actually. But we, dig we digress. So um, Nick Lowe invented this word called um, fraudolescence to describe the luminous quality of feeling like a fraud. Steve Braunius is a fraudolescence detector, but there's another new word in that sentence. The word brawnius has become a byline for brilliant, total, totally bipartisan reporting. In James Wood's marvellous memoir of his life as a book critic, he says, In ordinary life, we don't spend very long looking at things or at the natural world or at people, but writers do. It is what literature has in common with painting, drawing, photography. Steve looks and looks and then he writes. He's a miniaturist, a portraitist and an archivist. We love the way he notices just how the paint has dried. And for that, and for the reason that we hope to read more of him between hardcovers, we'd like to present him with the Nigel Cox Award. And that's my little speech. So thanks, Steve, and thanks. <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.